0: Amen. Well, I'm thankful that you're here tonight, especially as we do each year. Uh, It has been the practice, I think, ever since I uh, arrived here in uh, New Jersey to make sure that each year uh, one of us, either uh, a ruling elder who attends, Elder Martirosian would often attend, or myself would give a report uh, of The actions of the assembly and sort of help translate those things into uh, as common language as possible for our congregation so that we would know together uh, really the state of our denomination. And so tonight is that time for uh, a report. So whether you're here or watching at home, this, as we so often say, sometimes in the evenings or other times, this is not the normal practice, uh, how we go through. Uh, the text tonight. uh, The text is really a meditation. It sort of sets a framework uh, for me in my own mind, and I hope for you about uh, the report itself. uh, sort of weaves the actions of the assembly in the midst of that meditation. So the text I've chosen tonight uh, comes from the book of Leviticus, and if you're familiar with chapter 25 of Leviticus, a book that uh, we have studied before, actually, when we were back at Village, um, went through a whole study of the book of Leviticus. I uh, trust it was very uh, profitable, it certainly was for me as we understood what that book means, as we understand the sacrifice of our Savior. But uh, tonight, we're looking at a particular chapter, really the only place that we see in Leviticus, uh, in God's words specifically, where directions are given with respect to what is called the year of jubilee. And that, of course, is related to the 50 years uh, that the Lord commanded the people to celebrate, to set apart as holy, that 50th year, uh, to remember God's blessing, his goodness, uh, to do a number of things that were very, very important for the people. And, and all of those things we know pointed to something that was still yet to come, a liberty, uh, a freedom that would be fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ, both at his initial first coming and ultimately consummated at his second coming, something that we're still very much looking forward to. Of course, you, you know if you've grown up in this area, as I did all of my life in Philadelphia, that there's a very famous bell. Uh, downtown, hopefully you've seen it if you've been here for any length of time, the Liberty Bell. Uh, Its history dates back many, many years. One historian uh, writing on the uh, cause or the event uh, for which it was originally created uh, writes this, the Pennsylvania Assembly ordered the bell in 1751 to commemorate the 50-year anniversary of William Penn's 1701 Charter of Privileges, which was Pennsylvania's original constitution. It speaks of the rights and freedoms valued by people the world over. As the bell was created to commemorate the golden anniversary of Penn's charter, the quotation "Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof, is taken, of course, from Leviticus 25, verse 10. And it is particularly apt, of course, especially as the bell became to be used uh, in the time of the revolution and all that followed. It would be used in the emancipation of the slaves as well. It would be rung on several significant, important occasions. But they all sort of are linked to this chapter in Leviticus um, And I want to read that tonight, just a portion of Leviticus 25, verses 8 through 22. And I'm going to ask that you stand as we hear God's word read, that he would bless it to our hearing and to our understanding. Now, this follows the the Sabbath year uh, in the first seven verses. I'm not going to read those, but uh, the seventh year. But listen to these verses beginning in verse 8. You shall count seven weeks. Of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. And if the years are few, you shall reduce the price. For it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God. "'For I am the Lord your God. "'Therefore you shall do my statutes "'and keep my rules and perform them, "'and then you will dwell in the land securely. "'The land will yield its fruit, "'and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. "'And if you say, "'What shall we eat in the seventh year "'if we may not sow or gather in our crop? "'I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year "'so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years.' When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop, and you shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. Thus far the reading of God's word, all flesh is as the grass, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, you have redeemed us so that we might be set free free from the bondage to sin. And this picture of the year of Jubilee is but a picture of that freedom that is ours in Jesus Christ. And so how we rejoice in this picture and shadow and type. And we pray that you would help us to understand its relationship to us today and how we live in that freedom that, and the liberty of the children of God. Please bless your word to our hearing and growth and encourage us, In all that you are doing in our denomination, we give you thanks for it, pray your blessing upon it, and we ask all of this with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. I normally begin just with some lighthearted introductory things to help you understand the... um, Experience of attending General Assembly. It is in Richmond this uh, next year, Richmond, Virginia, which is a drivable distance. Which means, Lord willing, we'll have some of our ruling elders attend with us uh, this next year, which would be a great blessing. In fact, there's a a great movement going on in our denomination to increase the number of ruling elders who attend. Uh, There were over, I think, two hundred or two thousand and two hundred plus registrants this year, I think the number percentage-wise of ruling elders increased as it had over the past couple of years. But if you think back to the very first General Assembly in 1973, there were more ruling elders there than there were teaching elders. So it's done a complete reversal. We need to see that come back to more balance. But Lord willing, this next year we'll see that uh, uh, from our own church uh, as God is pleased. Now there were no significant happenings. I didn't open any water bottle on a plane and have it squirt across the way, as I did one year. There was no kind of funny or interesting things that happened. I did miss my normal travel companion. Now it's been a couple of years since Elder Martirosian has been able to attend, and so I didn't eat at Chick-fil-A as often as I probably would like. He loves that, and that's his restaurant of choice. I did enjoy a wonderful Monday evening dinner with teaching elder Carol Wynn from 10th Presbyterian Church, a brother I've known for almost 40 years, Um, and so we had a wonderful dinner, he and I, together at B.B. King Restaurant with live music. David Szilard and my son Isaac would have loved it. Uh, We could hardly talk, but the music was great, blues, as you might imagine. I attended my first Gospel Reformation Network luncheon, which is uh, part of a movement in our denomination. Uh, to encourage uh, orthodoxy in every aspect, to be open about its commitment to uh, various truths and and really the orthodoxy of our denomination. So I got to see a lot of good and old friends uh, that I've known over the years, including our own John Owen Butler, of course, Beth's dad. It was great to see him. He actually sat at our table, so it was great to catch up with him. One of the things I found very interesting, this was the first year ever that I remember this, but the the issues that we were discussing, um, and we'll talk about some of those in a moment, especially the issues around the subject of abuse, uh, sexual abuse within the denomination, that, that's been an issue for several years as it is in many denominations right now in the culture and time in which we live. And so the PCA, I think, is dealing very well with those issues. But because we had several overtures that were sort of asking for some actions, uh, we became very aware of a number of people uh, from the surrounding area, and even those who had traveled in, uh, that were there to protest. Um, And in fact, we received, as a denomination meeting, uh, several threats. Um, And so this was the first time I heard this, and this is what our stated, I'm paraphrasing, but this is the essence of it. Uh, Our stated clerk said really at the very beginning of the assembly as the committees were beginning to meet, and then he said it on the floor of the assembly, he said this, Gentlemen, I know that we all enjoy our liberties, but we are asking you not to confront protesters you may see, especially those who act violently. Please do not shoot across this assembly hall. There are too many people here. We have people that we have hired. You will not see them until they are needed. So I thought, well, that's an ominous way to begin an assembly, uh, that there might be some people who want to shoot. Uh, I can guarantee you in Memphis, for sure, that there would have been uh, men who were carrying. Uh, I can assure you that. But they were just encouraged not to use uh, those things. So um, Most of you know if you watched it. May I see a show of hands of people who watched the assembly, the whole thing? Yeah, You're committed if you did, yeah. So some of you may have watched parts. You can still go back and see any part that interests you. I would suggest the debates uh, from the uh, Committee on Overtures, I think, is always interesting. Uh, I think the uh, debates around the review of Presbytery records, especially this year, was a very important debate. And some of the debates related to particular subjects are interesting, so I encourage you, you can still do that. But you may know already that T- teaching elder Frederick or Fred Greco, uh, each year the assembly chooses a moderator, either a teaching elder, ruling elder, rotating. What's interesting about Fred is that he is actually, or was actually, is a teaching elder now, but was a ruling elder. And so he actually served in both positions within the church over the years, and he did really an excellent job, I think, as far as a moderator, running an assembly of over 2,200 men and doing it efficiently and with excellence is just a remarkable thing. Uh, I've given to you tonight, well, only those who want to hold it in their hands, I'm going to send it later for you to read, but our stated clerk every year puts together a report from the General Assembly, contains lots of information about The whole denomination, numbers, if you're interested in those things. There are 15 copies in the back. I'm going to send it later tonight as an attachment. You can read it then as well. But some people like to hold it. Uh, One of the things you'll see out in the narthex is a very large reproduction of what is called the message to all the churches. It was uh, written by the original founders of our denomination in 1973. I have it there. It hangs in our office, so if you want to read it tonight, you can if you're a fast reader. You can try to find names on it that you can uh, identify, but uh, it's there for you to read. And the reason I brought it tonight and why it hangs in our office is because this year an overture came that says essentially we want to uh, acknowledge and declare that that message in 1973 when it was written is today a faithful expression of biblical polity, which shaped the founding of the PCA in 1973. Uh, it, it really is an expression of we still believe and hold to these things. So that's out there for you to see if you'd like. Uh, this year also, as you're well aware, I think, and, and they're really more than these three that I'm going to mention, but the Lord did in his providence take home some very significant men uh, that the Lord has used over many years in our denomination, uh, took them home to glory in his providence. Of course, Tim Keller from New York City, very well-known to all of us. Harry Reeder from Birmingham, Alabama, a uh, very faithful minister of the gospel for many, many years. And Stephen Smallman, you may remember years ago at our Reformation service, he spoke uh, in that October when he came uh, several years back. But three men, and there were others who the Lord, whom the Lord had taken home And so that created, I think, a a real sense of gratitude to the Lord for these men uh, as they have served so faithfully in our denomination. Why we do this every year is to uh, highlight the importance that we believe as a session it is for us to communicate to you uh, the actions of the assembly and where we are as a denomination. I'm committed to doing that because we are a connectional church. Uh, One brother said to me, I don't know what the word connectional means, meaning it's a word that we throw out. Uh, Connectional simply means that we are connected intimately with one another as churches. We, We don't stand alone here as Grace Presbyterian Church. We're connected to the churches of our local presbytery. And beyond that, we're connected to the churches of the whole General Assembly, each presbytery connected. I think there are 88 presbyteries now. I believe that's the correct number. But all of the churches of the PCA are connected, and that's reflected in how we govern ourselves, uh, how we go about and submit to one another in the Lord. Uh, So all of that is very important. So you should be... Uh, I would encourage you to be uh, a student of both this church, its session, uh, what we believe, what we teach, but also our presbytery, the churches of our presbytery, and then the PCA in general. And this is one of the ways you can sort of fulfill uh, that, I believe, calling as a member of this church to be sort of connected beyond just this local church. So, why Leviticus 25? Why talk about the year of Jubilee? Well, one of the reasons is because we're celebrating 50 years here in the PCA. And so it it kind of matches. And it really was part of the theme of the whole General Assembly. This was, in many ways, a year of Jubilee or of celebration. As we've looked back over 50 years of God's blessing uh, upon us, the growth that we've experienced numerically, Um, the ways in which God has blessed us financially uh, in so many ways which serve not only for churches themselves to exist and to have programs and to do what they do, but also to support the work of missions around the world. The Lord has been so uh, wonderful to us as a denomination. And I think this year especially... Uh, probably am coming back more encouraged than I have in most of the years that we've given this report. Uh, And I'll tell you why as we move through some of the highlights of this. But I want us to understand what the Lord is doing here in Leviticus 25. You know this is a command the Lord required of his people. Uh, In fact, at the end and then later in chapter, uh, in the chapter, He warns them that if they fail to follow his law with regard to the Sabbath, with regard to the 50-year Sabbath uh, and all of that, that he will judge them. And in fact, the judgment of God, if you read in prophets like Jeremiah, is directly linked to their failure to observe the year of Jubilee. Why is the year of Jubilee so important? What were they required to do? Well, one of the things they were required to do is they were required to go back to their home, to the land. And what does he mean by that? you got to go back to Joshua and see how the Lord divided up the promised land under Joshua as the people entered into the promised land. And he gave to each tribe particular portions of land. That's really what's in view here that every 50 years, no matter where you are, and you've heard the provisions, I won't go into all the provisions with regard to the sale of crops and how you adjust for where you are in connection to that Jubilee year, but the fundamental point was it was a place or a, a command to go back to your home, to the land that God had given to you there is no doubt, and commentators, I think, agree with this uh, almost across the board, that there are echoes here of the Garden of Eden as the land first given to Adam and Eve, the promise of this land that they were to till and to, and to keep and to steward. There's certainly a, an echo of that land to come or our heavenly home, heaven itself, which the promised land has always represented. And so this was very important for them, that they were required to do this. There was a setting free of, of slaves. There was a settling of debts. There was all of this command with regard to this year. So the Lord was saying, essentially, I want you to go back. I'm bringing you into the land of promise. That's the original intent. It is my land that I am giving to you, and I am calling you to faithfully and carefully steward it and all that is connected to it, to care for it as a caretaker. As such, I am the one who will determine what shall be done and how it shall be done. They were to take this very, very seriously. Now, as you follow that sort of teaching of Leviticus 25, again, it's just a thought to take us through the rest of the evening. My my reason for reading it is, is I do believe, from my own perspective, this is only my perspective, but I think it's been borne out by others, that what the PCA did this year in particular is that movement to sort of return home. And by home, I mean to that document that's out there. The initial sort of statement of these men who founded our denomination, what they stood for, what they were committed to, which was faithfulness to God's word, faithfulness to the reformed faith, obedience to God's great commission. And and as I understand the the issues we have faced over the past several years, what, what I really experienced and saw this year is God delivering us from this sort of captivity and bondage that we've been struggling with uh, to worldly ideas, worldly ways of thinking in some elements of our church, the, the sort of battles that we've reviewed over the last several years? There, there was a, a palpable, a very clear movement uh, within our assembly that we are setting to rest some of those things And really returning to our home, if you will, to our founding. So here are the ways that that sort of worked itself out. And the rest of this will be giving you some sense of of the actions of the assembly. And I hope uh, some of the ways that that impacts us. We have a very important committee. And some of you new to Presbyterianism would uh, maybe be interested in these things, but we have a committee called, and every Presbytery does as well, called the Review of Records. It's, it's really a function of review and control. It's part of why we're connected to one another. So sessions have to submit their minutes to Presbyteries. Presbytery, I'm on the committee, reviews the minutes of each session and identifies areas of concern, areas where the church may have veered in a different direction they ought not to. It's review and control. And those are reported to the presbytery, and then the presbytery requires an answer from the session. Why did you do this particular thing? Uh, And that works itself out in a process. It's fairly straightforward. The same is true at General Assembly. Every year, there's a committee that meets, Uh, in Atlanta to read all of the minutes of the presbyteries who then deal with their churches. Those minutes are sent to the assembly that committee reviews them and cites areas called exceptions where they have veered from our constitution or from the word of God. It's a way to monitor, to check so that no church, no presbytery can sort of do what they want irrelevant to our standards And so it makes sense. There was a very important action taken this year uh, that I think is is a great encouragement. It was to me and to many of those who think like me with regard to our denomination. The assembly debated an issue that came up when a church in one of our presbyteries allowed a, a woman, an ordained woman, in another denomination, the PCUSA, to preach in one of its churches during a morning worship service. The presbytery, seeing that one of the churches had done that, sort of investigated it, but did nothing. They didn't call the church to task. They didn't ask the church to require an answer from the church. They just let it go. That had continued for a couple of years. And this year, the assembly debated whether or not to have that presbytery for its failure to to address that issue, appear before our standing judicial commission, which is kind of like our Supreme Court. And, and they've debated, and the debate was very, um, if you watched it, it was very uh, you know, contentious. But in the end, the Presbyter- or the General Assembly overwhelmingly voted to have that presbytery appear before the SJC. There was another presbytery that did something else. The point here and the encouragement is our system works. When churches individually, presbyteries corporately, decide that they're going to stray from our standards, what we commonly confess, there is a system in place that actually works and calls those uh, churches or presbyteries to task and this is exactly what happened. Uh, it was a great encouragement to the assembly to affirm our position on this matter as you and I have been listening and hearing Pastor Fisher go through First Timothy, the very clear teaching of God's word with respect to the limits of, of who may preach and who may be ordained. That was a great encouragement and to hold our churches and presbyteries accountable uh, was wonderful to see. It, it was really a return home to what we've always committed ourselves to and agreed upon. That was just one example of what happened in that sort of report. The The bulk of the assembly, really substantive issues, comes out of the Overtures Committee. Uh, now again, just for sake of definition, an overture is simply a request from the lower courts, either sessions or presbyteries, to the General Assembly for action. That's what it is. Would you do this? We are making an argument. We want you, the Assembly, to consider doing this. It it can deal with a number of subjects, and I'll give you a sense of some of those things that we dealt with as a General Assembly. It, It comes through a committee, which is really the, the one place where there is genuine, open, free debate in the General Assembly. Much of the debate on the floor of the General Assembly is limited, but open debate, uh, debate that is thorough and and engaging happens in the Overtures Committee. That's why we always have someone. Usually it's myself. This year it was Stephen O'Neill, who's preached here before. Uh, he was on the committee this year. I sat in for a lot of the meeting. It's a, it's a wonderful committee, and we need to have somebody on there. Here are some of the highlights of that committee, and this is where we'll spend most of our time this evening. There was an overture that was sent up by uh, a presbytery, asking the assembly to officially reject secular social justice and critical race theory. Now those are issues that the assembly has dealt with in the past when it's dealt with the issues of of race within the denomination and relationships among the races in the denomination. And the assembly believes that its previous actions, study papers that were done, effectively address those issues and that was an encouragement we didn't need to respond to that we rejected the uh, overture uh, because it was sufficient what we have done already another overture came from a presbytery uh, saying that no woman may preach exhort or teach at a public worship assembly anywhere where a man is present The assembly did not reject that. They did not approve it. They simply sent it back to the presbytery because a lot of the language was very unrefined. And so without prejudice, it was sent back. Um, Another overture, I think, which uh, generated a little bit of debate, uh, maybe more more than just a little, was an overture to amend our book of church order, chapter 7, section three to include this language. Unordained people shall not be referred to as or given the titles of the ordained offices of pastor, elder, or deacon. I think you can figure out what that means. We have a lot of churches. You look up their websites. You will see men who are not ordained referred to as a youth pastor. Now, some of you may be saying, well, what is wrong with that? Well, our book of church order, and we believe the scriptures, uses those terms in a very particular way, and they are used of the ordained offices only. You have women in our denomination who are referred to on some websites as deaconess or even deacons. This overture, which was passed by the assembly, now requires, should the presbyteries approve it and next year's assembly approve it, that those titles can no longer be used for those who are not ordained. That may seem to some of us to be rather unnecessary, but there is something that's happening in our denomination with respect to the use of these titles that I think bears out that this is very, very important. For clarity, uh, for, for our witness to the world, I think it's very, very important uh, to, to make this statement. Um, a very important and timely overture came, uh, asking the General Assembly to make uh, a statement to our government. Uh, You know from past reports that it's rare that we do that because our our power is ecclesiastical. Uh, We don't have civil power or civil authority. But there are times extraordinary, which the confession itself acknowledges, where a church ought to speak to the civil government. And we did vote this year and passed overwhelmingly to have the moderator elect a commission to speak to our national and state governments regarding uh, these uh, gender change surgeries that are taking place on minors uh, the debate was very encouraging. There, of course, there wasn't anyone at all who would ever argue that these things are good, but it was greatly encouraging to see the unanimity and the and the agreement uh, upon in the whole assembly to make a very clear, measured, focused biblical statement with regard to the evil of these surgeries being done. So that passed overwhelmingly. We also passed an overture to make a statement consistent with what we did in 1973 on abortion. So essentially to take that statement from 73 and to move it forward now and to appeal to our governments, state governments especially, but also the federal government, that abortion is a great evil in the sight of God and we ought to abandon its practice. Overture 23, if you watch the assembly, you know that um, this was the overture that dealt with the issue we've been dealing with for uh, about five years now, and that is the issue of revoice, uh, its involvement in our church, um, and by that I mean one of our churches who is no longer part of our denomination. They have left along with its minister and its elders, Um, but this year we passed an overture that adds this language to our book of church order. It overwhelmingly passed the assembly. Now, some may look at it and say the language isn't specific enough. Others may look at it and say it's perfect because it deals with it. And if men are men of integrity, they will see that. They'll be very clear on where we stand on these issues. In fact, it has never been unclear that as a denomination, this is where we stand on the issues of gender identity, identifying oneself as a gay Christian, those issues that we've talked about many times. Uh, with respect to the ordained offices, listen to the language this has passed, and hopefully, Lord willing, with God's blessing, having gone through the presbyteries this coming year and voted next year uh, in the affirmative, will be the official language again of our uh, denomination it adds this language very brief he the ordinand the one seeking ordination so a minister or an elder or a deacon he should conform to the biblical requirement of chastity and sexual purity in his description of himself and in his convictions character and conduct now, for a man of integrity reading that, they would understand as they read it that they are not permitted in this denomination to identify themselves by their sin. That is, by their inclination uh, towards homosexuality or anything like that. And so, hopefully, again, Lord willing, and please pray that as this goes through the presbyteries, it, it again passed overwhelmingly. Remember last year, Overture 15 passed very narrowly and failed in the presbyteries this passed overwhelmingly i think there were a hundred votes against it out of 200, two thousand two hundred uh, attendees so pray that that would indeed uh, pass the final issue and we'll end here and by end i'm not saying we're done i'm just saying we've got this last item to deal with And that is the issue of abuse. You remember there was a a report done, a study report done with respect to abuse. Last year it was presented uh, to the assembly. There were a number of things to follow up on. And part of that, recommendations that came out of that study report, was that the presbyteries would consider overtures to send up to the general assembly to sort of make sure that we as a denomination are protecting women within our churches from sexual abuse. That is what is affecting every denomination right now in our nation. Every single one is facing the same thing. And, And there are instances which are found in various churches in every denomination, and it needs to be addressed. There is absolutely no tolerance for this in our local church, in our presbytery, nor in our denomination. And so our commitment to making sure that women, children are protected from abuse and abusers is beyond uh, any shadow of a doubt that we are committed to those things. There were a number of overtures that came up. One asked the General Assembly to approve background checks for all church officers. Now, some of you may say, again... We do that for our nursery workers. Why would we not do that for pastors and elders and deacons? The problem again, and and this is something we have to understand about Presbyterianism, sometimes things move slowly because the language is not what it should be. And there were elements of this overture that were solid and good, some elements not. And so it was sent back for refinement. It's going to come again next year. And I suspect very shortly... Presbyteries can now do that. No problem. Churches can do that. no problem. But as far as the assembly, this was sent, sent back for refinement. It was not so that we might protect men, that we might hide, etc.. It was simply set back, sent back for refinement of language. Another overture that was rejected actually, because it was really prejudicial is to prevent lawyers, professional lawyers, from participating in our church courts. Now, a person cannot be represented by a professional paid attorney when they go through a trial within our courts. That's already forbidden. But we ought not to forbid men who happen to be lawyers from participating in some way in trials held within our church courts. And so I agree that it was too restrictive. It was prejudicial against men who may serve as professional lawyers, but are not representing anyone particularly. I think one of the great encouragements this year, um, and you need to understand that before this assembly, there were a lot of things written about this assembly, if you followed. During the assembly, there were a lot of things written that were libelous, with respect to putting in writing things that were just in error about the assembly, that we don't care about those who are abused because we didn't pass these particular overtures. That is just false. That is not true. So if you've heard some of those things, you need to understand that that is simply untrue. Uh, We're not more concerned about who may be called a pastor or an elder or deacon, more concerned about that than we are about women who may be abused in some of our churches. Uh, that is not true, but those are the articles that were written because some of these did not pass. Now, there was no sense of saying, here's why it didn't pass, language needs to be refined, et cetera. But one thing that did, which I thought was very encouraging, uh, and I had no doubt it would, last year we passed uh, an addition to our uh, book of church order, uh, the rules of examination and cross-examination. And basically said that no one who is an accuser of someone within our churches, no one who is an accuser will be directly cross-examined by the accused. Now that makes sense. Why would you allow the accused to cross-examine in person the accuser? The intimidation factor is off the charts. And so very wisely, the assembly last year and ratified this year that anyone who is an accuser of someone will not have to sit face to face in the presence of the accused and will never have to be in the presence of the accused cross-examined. Now, that's done through other means. It needs to be done through other means, but it will never be done where the accused looks in the face of the accuser. Um, That just cannot be. We need to protect those who are making these accusations from that intimidation. Now, the one thing related to this whole subject, and I'm trying to move through this very quickly, is the issue of who can testify in a trial with respect especially to issues of abuse. So a man is accused of abusing someone within the church. Let's put it on Parody. It's not a child, it's an adult who accuses a minister of abuse. Um, when you have the trial, and we have trials as a denomination, they're, they're rare, actually, but they happen, and there are all kinds of rules about those trials. Our current BCO says that with respect to who may testify, atheists, atheists against God... Are not permitted to give testimony in the church courts. That is the long standing tradition of every Reformed church that we know of. And in fact, as I think Matthew Fender, who has done a great job, he's a ruling elder in Virginia um, and, and one of the most vocal on these issues, writes a lot about, he's a lawyer, he writes a lot about these issues. And he says, we have never known in the history of our denomination a trial which was dependent upon the testimony of an atheist. It just doesn't happen. He says, and I think he's right, and it means no disrespect to those who brought the overture. He says, this is a solution looking for a problem that is not there. There is no problem in our book of church order. Yes, it does say, uh, and here's the language actually of what it says All persons of proper age and intelligence are competent witnesses. So infants can't testify here, right? We understand that. Except such as do not believe in the existence of God or a future state of rewards and punishments. That language is standard across many denominations reformed denominations especially so it essentially rules out atheists now why does it rule out atheists well simply because there is no incentive in a church court for an atheist to tell the truth there is for those who confess and acknowledge the god who sees our hearts and understands and sees all of our actions etc who believes in a future Uh, time or state of reward and punishment based on what we do here. Atheists have no belief in any of that. There is no incentive then, given the vow that is taken, which really frames it all with respect to God who knows the heart, who who acknowledges or who knows your heart, and the whole matter before him is laid open, and he will judge those who lie. There's no sense in which an atheist is bound to any of that. Where are they bound Well, if they believe in the civil authorities, they're bound in civil courts. They can be punished by what? They can be found to be lying to the court. And that's a punishable offense that carries often a time of uh, being put in jail or a fine at the very least. There's an incentive there. The church has no place to do that. We have no way at all to actually punish someone within church courts lying. And so wisely, I think, our denomination and many others have said atheists and only atheists may not, in fact, testify. It's not going to be admitted. So do you have to believe in God? Yes. A state of reward and punishment? Yes. Later on, there's a part of our BCO that says, you may request to swear by someone or something else. You still believe in a God, you still believe in a future state of reward and punishment. And so technically, our courts allow the testimony of those who are believers in other religions, Islam, Jewish religion, Hindu religion. If they acknowledge those basics, it's already fairly wide, actually. But they have to believe in these very things in order to testify. Now, what's very interesting, people who are opposed to this, I know there are people, perhaps even in our own church, that may be opposed to the action the assembly took. We rejected this, removing this language, and we voted to keep it the same as it is. So atheists still today are not permitted to give testimony. So imagine a case that happens. Someone is accused of uh, abusing someone within the church what would be, and I can tell you what our session's response is, what would be the very first thing we would do? Contact the civil authorities. That's required. It's required in our nursery standards. If something happens, we're required to contact the civil authorities immediately. They have power to do a lot more than we do. Our power is spiritual, Our power deals with the offender. We can excommunicate them. We can bar them from the Lord's table. We cannot put them in jail. The civil authority can. And anything the civil authority obtains with respect to evidence, etc., is admissible in the church courts. People tried to argue that there's no way the church courts will accept anything then from outside. That's not true. Anything that comes from civil authorities, their investigation is admitted into the church courts and can be used in that trial against the man accused of abuse. There's a lot more to say about this, and perhaps privately we can talk about some of these things. Maybe you have some things that would sort of challenge what we've done as a denomination, but that is what we did, and and that was really the, the subject of so much of the things that were written with respect to um, our denomination and what we've done this year at General Assembly. So I do agree with uh, ruling Elder Fender. I I do think this is really a solution looking for a problem that's really not there. Uh, And I think he's right. There's never been a case ever in the history of our church where the only testimony that would prove the guilt of the person would be a testimony from an atheist. It's never been true. There's been plenty of others that testify the establishment of guilt has been easily done when those things have taken place. So that's a summary, and we're going to end now. That is a summary, I think, of what we've experienced this year at General Assembly, some of the highlights of some of the more controversial things. I I do think that going back to the year of Jubilee, it really is, for me, On its 50th anniversary, the the PCA is really heading home. It's really moving in a direction that I find uh, greatly encouraging. Uh, Again, perhaps more encouraged this year than I've ever been uh, as to where we are as a denomination. And I'm hopeful that the Lord will continue to bless us in the next 50 years. I, I think I was talking to someone and it was during the assembly that someone said, listen, most denominations, about 150 years is what they have before the downward spiral into liberalism, right? And and that probably is borne out to be true as you look at history. We're we're at 50, and I think at 50 years, we're looking uh, to be moving in the right direction uh, as you think about what all of this means, this year of jubilee. Of course, as as Moses wrote these words uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit, You know what the Spirit is is doing as far as laying out in the word and pointing ultimately to the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, It's not surprising that as Jesus quotes in Luke 4, the passage that was read earlier, he's quoting from Isaiah 61. But Isaiah 61 sort of is built out of this understanding of jubilee and setting the captives free. Remember his language, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Remember, slaves were set free and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty all of those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he said, as he sat down closing the scroll, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So today, this liberty, which the day of Jubilee or the year of Jubilee represented and pointed to, today is the day of liberty in Jesus Christ. People, sinners are being set free all around the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today is the day of of salvation. It's no surprise that this year of Jubilee began on what day? What was celebrated on the very first day of that year? It was the Day of Atonement, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, pointing to Christ who sets us free. The creation itself, Romans says, is longing for the liberty to be part of and to be sort of uh, subsumed into the liberty of the children of God set free through Jesus Christ and him alone. And so as you bring it all full circle, the PCI, I think this year has come home closer to home, I think than we have in years past and some of these struggles. It's an encouragement to me as one of your pastors and I think ultimately to our elders as we think about what the Lord is doing, but it's also an encouragement all around the world. And I hope as people here through our missionaries and others of all that the Lord did this year in our assembly, that they're taking great encouragement as well. You know, there's one story, it's brief, so please let me really end here as we think about this liberty that people are hearing as the gospel goes forth. It was a very touching story, a powerful story uh, that Lloyd Kim, who is uh, the head of Mission to the World, uh, shared with us at the assembly that he heard from one of our missionaries. And we have missionaries, of course, you know, in Turkey that we support and hear from often. Lloyd Kim says this. He says, waking the morning of February 6, 2023, that's this year, he saw the devastation from the earthquake that hit Turkey and Syria. We know now that at least 55,000 people died and many more than that were injured he heard, he said, days later from a friend in Turkey, and again, we support uh, missionaries there, about how the earthquake had destroyed the Antioch Church and killed the pastor and his wife, leaving their eight-year-old son Yole, or Yol, an orphan. And then he said this: this was amazing to me. And, and I think of the work of the gospel, God's grace in the lives of our children. Listen to this prayer that this orphaned child, his parents taken, what he prayed at their funeral. This is what he prayed. It was written down at eight years old, a young boy who understood what really the Jubilee is all about, the freedom and the setting free. He said this, he said, thank you, Lord, for taking my parents from this wicked world from this world that is getting worse every day to your paradise. They are safe and they are free today. They are in the best place today by your side. We will suffer, we will grieve, but we will soon rejoice. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that one day I will be able to see them again. You are a good God. I know how much you love them and that's why you took them You took them to be with you so that they would not suffer. I thank you. Glorify your name. Amen. Eight years old. Would you have any doubt that the gospel has so deeply rooted itself in this boy's heart and mind that in the face of the loss of his parents, he would be able to celebrate the year of Jubilee that they were enjoying in that very moment. That is an encouragement to me of what is happening in the world. And I hope it's an encouragement to you as well. Let's pray. Father, as we consider just a small part of what you have done this year in our denomination and the hope that we have for the future, we pray that you would keep us faithful to you, Uh, true indeed to uh, the Reformed faith, faithful to the scriptures which you have given And obedient to that great commission so that we might take the gospel all around the world. That men and women and young people would understand the freedom and the liberty that is found only in Jesus. Blow the trumpet indeed, shout for Jesus reigns. And he brings liberty to the captives. He sets the prisoners free. We have heard that all throughout this day. We hear it again tonight and we rejoice in the work of your salvation, and pray your blessing now upon us as we enter this week with great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.